0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. One of the functions of saying the creed together, uh, either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, is uh, to remind us of the timeless truth that we believe, that uh, Christians have believed through all of time. And it's the purpose of it is to kind of keep us steady uh, as we live lives that um, challenge the kind of core beliefs that we have and have always had. Uh, Changing times um, threaten timeless truth. And so uh, I remember sort of being confronted with this when it comes to the reality of Satan and demons, which is a strong feature of our passage this morning. I told you a couple of weeks ago of uh, a sort of brief account of my experience Coming to faith in the USA and that it came about in the midst of some pretty wild, uh, weird, demonic activity. And when I came back uh, as a 19-year-old kid, I got asked to go to a, a big church out east uh, in the eastern suburbs. And, um, and a friend of mine there asked me to come and speak because they were doing a a series looking at sort of challenging topics and this one was on Satan and demons and so he asked me to share my experience of this, this weird stuff that was going on over there. And so I did that and um, I wasn't really used to speaking in front of people so I, was, uh, I wasn't sure if I had done a good job or not. And I asked him afterwards, you know, how, did, how do you think it went? And he said, oh, like, the way that you said what you said was great but to be honest, I don't believe any of it. And I was like, huh? Like, that's a true story. That, I was just saying what happened. And he said, no, not, I believe what happened to you. I just don't think that there was anything demonic about it or satanic or um, I think weird, just weird stuff happens. And that, that is not an uncommon belief in the West. Right. It's a very uncommon if not non-existent belief in two-thirds of the world, um, but in post-enlightenment secular western civilizations like ours, the idea that there is some kind of personal demonic force called Satan and that he has attendant um, ministers called demons is um, you're gonna find it hard to find people who don't think that that's kind of laughable, to be honest. And so that kind of idea, and that might be something that you hold yourself, it kind of collides very uh, dramatically with the passage this morning. Um, we know that Revelation is written in uh, apocalyptic genre and that there's a lot of symbolism and that it ought not be read Literally, but even with all of those caveats, you can't get away from the fact that John and Jesus speaking through him is very much assured of the existence of a literal enemy we call Satan. John's going to explain a whole lot about, or, or unveil a whole lot about satan and demonic forces and how the way that he sees it and the way that he wants us to see it is that the world around us is constantly being animated and motivated by these evil forces and that you don't need to have experiences like i did in the us weird crazy stuff you don't have to have those experiences to see the effect of Satan's mission in the world. John's whole point is that for the most part, what Satan is up to is veiled from us, that he works through systems of injustice. He works through governments and leaders and, and like whole systems that are set up to oppose God and his kingdom, to oppose his rule of peace to institutionalize injustice. And he wants us to see that these things are not just happening on the surface, but there is a, a deeper level of, of, of mobilization that's going on, which comes from Satan himself. That's the big idea. We'll cover that today, and then next week in verse uh, chapter 13 and 14, and then we'll take a break uh, until October, where we'll do the final five sermons in this series. So I'd love you to turn to this, and we'll just have a look at the way that John paints this picture, kind of a a whole history here that he lays out of the church from its beginnings right up until today. So we're going to jump in at verse 1 to 4. John writes, a great sign, you're going to hear this a lot. Today and next week, there are these series of signs that he gives us. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Lots of symbolism there. So let's just decode a little bit of it. It's not that difficult to get. Uh, the The symbolism here is the the, the woman. Um, the The woman is representative here of, of both Israel and the Church. I think I put in the series guide that m- maybe there there might be a bit of Mary and Eve in there, but they're kind of if they're there, they're very background. All right, I don't think John is really wanting us to call to mind. Mary, um, maybe a little bit more, Eve, uh, the, 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 the proto-gospel we get in Genesis chapter 3 about um, Eve bearing a son who would do battle with a serpent. Um, it might be there in the background, but I think the, the main thing he wants us to see here is the woman as Israel giving birth to the Messiah, who is Jesus. That's the woman and the child. The woman, Israel, and all of the symbolism that he gives there is symbolic of Israel from the old covenant. Okay, So you've got the the moon and and you've got the sun and you've got a crown of 12 stars. This is all imagery familiar to the people of Israel. So Israel there, pregnant, ready to give birth to a long-awaited Messiah, the, the promised Messiah, the child that's gonna be born and the dragon, very obviously Satan himself, serpent, dragon, always representative of God's enemy, the devil. And uh, I think it's verse nine um, makes this really clear, names him as Satan, waiting there to devour the Messiah, for obvious reasons, right? Um, If he can destroy the Messiah, then that's the game over. We sang about this being God's only plan. uh, If he can annihilate the Messiah, then it's curtains for all of us. Um, One of the ways that we can sort of figure how John is revealing that which is under the surface of what we see on, uh, on, like playing out in real life, is um, really the story of Herod um, deciding that he would, annihilate Jesus um, by killing the firstborn in the you you know this from the Christmas story right Um, so on, on the outside in human history with flesh and blood on it we see Herod trying to kill Jesus and I think John is showing us that yes that's happened that's historical fact but there's a layer underneath that's that's animating that opposition and that's Satan himself That's kind of what the book of Revelation is trying to do throughout, taking things that we've observed in history and particularly in the first century and showing us what's beneath the surface. Remember, the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball, it's more like an X-ray. Book of Revelation is not trying to show us things that are going to happen in, in the future necessarily, but it's trying to show us what's beneath the surface of things that are already happening and have happened, and yes, will happen in the future as well. So you have the woman, you have her child, the Messiah, you have the dragon opposing him, and... Uh, This is what happens next, verse five to six. The woman fled into the wilderness. I beg your pardon, verse five. She gave birth to a son, that's Jesus, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days. So there in two verses you have Jesus birth, death, resurrection, ascension and the early church. It's like it's like a rapid fast forwarding. Right? You have Jesus born, he's he's saved from being consumed by the dragon. He ascends, caught up to God and his throne. We've seen that from heaven's perspective back earlier in the series where the lamb who was slain is uh, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, right? Ascends to heaven, uh, caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman then, Israel, now the early church, the, the believers in Jesus, Jewish converts and, and progressively Gentiles, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, fleeing into the wilderness. She's got a place there prepared by God to be nourished. So this is another familiar theme. If you know your Old Testament and New Testament, in fact, you have the people of Israel being saved from another dragon. Uh, Egypt often portrayed as a, a dragon uh, in ancient literature. You have the people of, of, of Israel saved from that dragon Um, and delivered into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place uh, prepared by God for the people of Israel and for his church, in this case, prepared by God to be a place of nourishment, of protection, and also of testing. Saw that with the people of Israel in their journeys through the wilderness. It was both a place of safety, but also a place of testing, and they very often failed that test you have jesus the true israel being uh, spending 40 days in the wilderness and passing the testing that he went through it was both a place of safety and nourishment but also of testing and so it is with the church today in this church age that we live in we are spending our days in the wilderness It's a place prepared by God for our nourishment, for our protection, but also for our testing. 1,260 days, remember, was it last week? We talked about that being kind of like our version of 9-11. It was symbolic for the people of Israel, the time that the Assyrians came in and trashed their temple and desecrated everything, and for a period of 1,260 days or... 42 months, three and a half years, they were suffering under the the rule of these oppressors. And John wants us to know that in some measure, that is going to be our experience in this church age. Until Jesus returns, we're going to be in the wilderness and we're going to be in some sense oppressed. But he wants to call to our mind what happened in that case, the Maccabean revolt happened and God's people prevailed and, and retook Jerusalem, for the people of God. God himself is going to do that when he brings Jerusalem down to earth, when he, he creates a new Jerusalem, a new heavens, a new earth, retakes his creation for the people of God. That day is coming, but we're going to have, symbolically, three and a half years. We're going to have this period, this age during which we are going to be tested. You need to know that. If you, if you got kind of bait, baited and switched into becoming a Christian because life would suddenly be amazing and you'd never have any problems anymore, um, they lied to you, all right? This is the wilderness. There's nourishment, there's protection, but there's also testing. There's temptation. There is an enemy, just as Jesus faced in the wilderness, Satan himself, present um, and, and with... Uh, nefarious designs so we have it in our case today and we're going to hear a little bit more about that as John paints the picture for us alright let's keep going verse 7 to 10 keep reading then war broke out in heaven he says Michael and his angels fought against the dragon the dragon and his angels also fought But he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down so we just got uh an explanation of what's going on in the heavenly realms as Jesus dies and is raised again there is a, a war going on in in the heavenly realms as that's happening As Jesus dies, war breaks out. Michael and his angels, that great arch-warrior angel and and his attendant angels go to war against Satan and his angels. This might be the the third of the stars that it mentions. He he swept down with his tail. That might be a reference to angels that have fallen and are now demonic um, powers. I, I don't know. That might be... Um, In any case, Michael's got his angels, Satan's got his angels, demons, and they've gone to war. Now, as Jesus triumphs over the grave, as he's resurrected to everlasting life, that battle is decided. It is a decisive, eternal victory over all of the darkness. Jesus wins. And so Satan is thrown down, thrown down with his angels, defeated, but not yet destroyed. Here's two things about Satan that we learn from this, that little passage we read. Verse 9, he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's in his job description. The deceiver... Of the whole world and verse 10 he's the accuser of christians accuser of brothers and sisters so you need to know this is what occupies him and his angels his demons this is what occupies them deceiving people rather than revelation it's obfuscation Right? Rather than what John is trying to do here, what, what the work of the Spirit is to bring clarity and to bring um, enlightenment about who God is and what he's done, Satan does the exact opposite work. He's looking to deceive. Deceiving the whole world and accusing people like you and me, accusing brothers and sisters... And this is what we need to know about him, though. We've just read that he was defeated, that he was thrown down. So you need to know that his accusations of you have no power over you. His accusations of you have no power over you. That doesn't mean that you won't hear them. if you've been a Christian for any length of time and taken it seriously, and take seriously the Lord Jesus' lordship over you, authority over you, if you take seriously his commands that he's given to you and the kind of standard of holiness that he calls you to, then you will have heard the voice of the accuser. Because... You know that you fail to meet that standard every minute of every day. And sometimes you fail in disastrous ways. And sometimes you fail in prevailing ways. That is, you get trapped into habitual sins. And that's where the accuser really, really does a lot of destructive work. One of the marks of true, mature Christianity, in my mind, is not complete avoidance of sin. There's only one who's ever done that. But that when we sin, we run immediately to the throne of grace. Now, here's what I've experienced in terms of the... uh, methodology of the accuser a little bit like when he's crouching in front of israel waiting to consume the messiah i feel like and this is how i imagine it this is not biblical this is just in my own imagination but my my, myself as i come to terms with my own sin and the experience of contrition that is i recognize That I'm wrong I recognize that I'm not living as God created me to be I'm not living like Jesus right that at that moment Satan is crouching a little bit like with Cain crouching and what he's what he's looking to consume devour is my desire to run to the throne of grace Because he knows there I find salvation and redemption and restoration. So if he can pounce before I get to the throne of grace, then he has achieved something. And the way that he does it is by making accusations like, you can't go to the throne of grace with this. This is the seventh time this week. How much... How much advantage do you think you can take of God and his grace? Is this resonating with anyone? Am I the only crazy person in the room? Anyone else hearing accusations like this? Now, the accusations are made. He accuses the brethren, the brothers and sisters, day and night. What we need to know Not just theoretically, abstractly, but internally, what we need to know is that those accusations have no power over us, not because they're not true. It is true that I'm a terrible sinner, it is true that I consistently fail to live what I believe. It is true that I am a hypocrite. Paul said of himself, I'm the chief of sinners. These things are true. The reason they don't have power over us is because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. It's true. But he's washed it white of snow, all right? He has done it all. He said on the cross, it is finished. The quickest way to shut the mouth of the dragon so that you can get to the throne of grace is to simply tell him the gospel. The gospel is, yes, I am corrupted. Yes, I am a hypocrite. Yes, I am a sinner. But I have a great savior. And his blood was shed for me. And he rose victorious from the grave. And he has promised me forgiveness and eternal life. He shut the mouth of the dragon. This is the wilderness we live in. It's habited by dragons and the, and the chief among them. He's been thrown down to the earth and that's where we live. This is reality. You can deny it and say that you're an enlightened person and you don't believe in fairy stories anymore, but that won't diminish the presence of Satan and demons even a little bit. He is living, he is active, he is defeated, but he's not yet destroyed, he is dangerous. How do you deal with him? Verse 11, they, that, that's, that's us, that's believers, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. The blood of the lamb, The word of their testimony. That's how you conquer. I sometimes get nervous about people who teach about spiritual warfare because it it comes across like they themselves are the instrument that God uses to conquer the devil. And if it was up to us, we would be consumed in seconds. We're nothing to him both in terms of value and in terms of power. The way that we conquer is by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is the source of our power and authority over Satan and demons. That's why you speak the gospel to the accuser to shut him up. You don't, say, you don't parade your goodness before him. You don't rack up your kind of Christian achievements. You preach the blood of the lamb and you give witness. That's the word testimony. You bear witness to what Christ has done on your behalf. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Not uh, inward I look and find some goodness or some success or some Christian maturity. But upward I look. It's the blood of the lamb, the risen, reigning, ruling lamb. You need to know how to give testimony to the goodness of God, to the gospel. A testimony is not something that some people sometimes do up the front with a microphone and five minutes of notes, although that's great. Testimony is something that you need to have as a weapon in your belt to be able to offer it to someone who's seeking and to be able to brandish it when the dragon shows up. But don't do number two without number one. Don't do do the testimony without the blood. Some testimonies of Christians sound a lot like my resume of Christian achievements, or even how bad I used to be and how good I am now. They They have to be soaked in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the hero. The only knight in this morning, in, in, in this passage, that's, that's cutting down a dragon is, is the, the lamb that was slain. Blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. That's how we conquer. I, th- I just think it's bizarre in any case that we get included in the conquering part. Like, you've got Jesus. Death, resurrection, ascension. You've got Michael and angels battling, right? Waging war. And yet we're included here. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. It's like kids wearing their granddad's medals on Anzac Day, which is beautiful. But like that's, that's somehow we're included in this. Paul says we're more than conquerors through Christ. Through Christ. now lest we leave here with our chests puffed too much it is sobering to read about just how dangerous our defeated devil is defeated but dangerous because he's not yet destroyed that day is coming But it's not here yet. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. Because he knows his time is short. A great deal of his motivation is knowing that his time is short. He knows he's defeated. He knows he'll be destroyed. He knows that he needs to make the most of the time that he has. You see this in wartime. Even like when enemies are defeated, even enemies who have surrendered, those who refuse to surrender are often the most dangerous adversaries. They've got nothing to lose. Here's a vision of how he works. All right. Verse 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. So that's Israel, the very first Christians, Jewish converts, those who were there at the the arrival, the incarnation of Jesus. So he persecutes them. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness. That's imagery from the Exodus. God says to Moses, you know, after he has rescued them from Egypt, he says, I brought you out on eagles' wings. All right, I delivered you into the, this place of safety in the wilderness on, on eagles' wings. Same is true of these guys. They're preserved, they are rescued, if not in body, certainly in spirit. That is, many of them were put to death and martyred. Like some of them were sawn in two. Some of them were dressed in goat skins and then fed to lions. This is a deliverance on eagles' wings that sometimes is preceded by being torn apart. But nothing could separate them from the love of God. Their salvation is intact, preserved by God's own power. They've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And so they're delivered to God himself for eternity, awaiting the new heavens and the new earth on eagles' wing. Says they'll be nourished for a time, times and half a time. That's fancy way of saying three and a half years. It's the same symbolic language as the 1,200, whatever it was, 60. Uh, It's the church age. It's the age that we live in now. And then he goes on. From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. I think this is imagery of Satan's devices. Remember, he's a deceiver and an accuser. Much of the damage he does is with his mouth. He spews deceit. One of his great preoccupations is getting believers who are trusting in Jesus alone to shift their thinking. And in my experience, it's not to atheism. Atheism is this very peculiar, weird accident of history that a very few people have ever really believed. Much more likely is an adjustment from gospel centrality, belief in the scriptures to well, we just, we're, it's like that, but it's just we're, we're, we're just heading off. It's just like a few degrees off in this direction, and then over time you end up worlds away. He spews deceit. God overcomes him again in a, another Exodus-like situation where the inverse is true. Rather than the waters swallowing up, they are taken away, they are robbed of their power to overwhelm God's people. And then we have everyone since. Everyone who's claimed the name of Jesus throughout history is then the object of his anger. And his schemes. Verse 17. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. That's all of us. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. So if you believe the gospel and are committed to following Jesus day to day, making all of life all about him, you need to know that you are now the object of Satan's fury. I don't know how many times I've heard either I became a Christian and then things got really hard for me, or I committed to this ministry and things got really hard for me." It's not an accident, it's not a coincidence. What's going on is you have a dragon who is furious, who knows his time is short, who's trying to do as much damage as he can, and who is specifically targeting those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And that is the rest of your life if you are signing up to making all of life all about Jesus. Now, the beauty of our situation is that we know that Satan is defeated. We know the end of the story, that Jesus conquers all of our enemies. We know our destiny is in a new heavens and a new earth, free from every stain of sin, both our own and those around us. No presence of evil, no demonic devices, In this life, in the wilderness, we enjoy nourishment, we enjoy sunshine, we enjoy every gift of God's common grace to us, but we will be opposed. Now, what do you do if this is true? Preach it. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Paul gives a really graphic and in his own way symbolic description of this. And this is what I'm going to end with, all right? In Ephesians chapter 6, some of you know it well, but just hear this. I'm going to read it slow. You might like to close your eyes. And then I'm going to pray that God would equip us to do this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 to 18. Finally, Red Door Church, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything, to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Let us pray. Father, we recognize this morning or perhaps are beginning to recognize that there is a whole world beyond our ability to see or hear, touch or smell and that there are forces who are desperately opposed to you, to your kingdom and to your people. And so as your people, we ask that you would please deliver us from evil. We thank you for your promise to preserve our faith against every attack of the enemy. And we ask that as we walk in step with the Lord Jesus, who himself, conquered Satan through life and death and resurrection that we too would conquer him through life and death and resurrection Father please equip us with the armour of God, the full armour of God, so that we can stand. And we yearn and long for your coming again, where you will have final victory over all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to take a couple of minutes to reflect.